Thank you. I would add my word of greeting to all those who are worshiping with us by way of live streaming today, and not only uh, members of our congregation who may be do doing so today, and some of you perhaps doing so for the first time. Uh, you're so accustomed to being here week in and week, week out, but I'm also conscious of the fact that so many congregations have had to uh, cancel their services that we probably have many people uh, tuning in and worshiping with us today who would not ordinarily do so. So we welcome you to the audience out there uh, in Cyberland and uh, encourage you to resume activity in your church as you're able. If you don't have a church, we would certainly welcome talking to you about life and service uh, through this congregation, First Presbyterian in Greensboro. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. I'll be reading from chapter 26, beginning at verse 17 and reading through verse 30, and then skipping to uh, verse 56, the close of verse 56. If you have a Bible with you at home, you wish to follow along, that would be good. In fact, you might even notice a difference in the version that I am reading. I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version. Uh, so many people use the New Revised Standard Version, but you'll hear a difference if that is the version you use or other versions. There are many ways of interpreting some of the wording, the Greek wording of this text. So let us listen now for the Word of God. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a one and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he sat at table with the twelve disciples, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful, and began to say to him and one another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who betrayed him, said, Is it I, Master? And he said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. I tell you, I shall not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then skipping ahead to verse 56, the close of 56, then all of the disciples forsook him and fled. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was a Thursday evening in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. That tends to be a rather pleasant time in the old city, None, not unlike the weather we are experiencing here in this area of Greensboro, the highs tend to be 
Uh, in the 70s, the lows in the upper 40s or the 50s, there's often a pleasant breeze blowing through the city. Um, it was a time of the Passover. And so Jesus wanted to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. They were in a borrowed room. We don't know who the person was that had that borrowed room, but uh, apparently he allowed the disciples to celebrate the feast with their leader, Jesus. And it was at this Passover meal, as was done annually in Jerusalem, if possible, because each year at the close uh, of the Passover meal, uh, the Jews say next year in Jerusalem. It's one of the pilgrim festivals. So if possible, they would love to be in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And Jesus knew full well, as did his uh, disciples, that every element of that meal had symbolic significance. Uh, the four cups of wine each represented something. The bread represented uh, the bread that was uh, baked in Egypt but didn't have time to rise. They were in such a hurry to leave. Uh, the matzo bread that was used to this day. The wine represented the blood of the lamb that was spread over the lentils of the homes so that the angel of death would avoid this home as it came through Egypt, sparing uh, children of the Hebrews. But Jesus infuses the elements of that meal with new meaning on this occasion, and for us as Christians, he is establishing what we call the sacrament of the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion or the Eucharist, referred to as many different ways. But in this sacrament, he says, now this bread represents my body that is broken. And he broke the bread in their presence. And this cup, now which cup was it? There are four cups for a Passover meal. It says in another gospel, it said, after supper he took the cup. So that would have been the third cup. It's called the cup of redemption. It says he gave thanks, he would have blessed it. And he would have used the words, the ancient words that are still used today over the drinking from the cup. Baruch atoh Adonai Eloheinu Maleko Alom Borei Puri Hagafen. Praised are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. And then he said, now, this represents my blood that is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Again, the blood of the lamb will be slain, but in this case, the lamb is the Lord's only begotten son. Powerful evening. A powerful evening. I've often wondered what it would have been like to be in that upper room with Jesus and his disciples who are so worried about the future, so fearful not knowing what is to come, like many people today and trying to deal with this coronavirus, just not sure what we will be facing in the future. Artists have tried to capture the spirit of this event. Artists from Dolly to Da Vinci and many others besides, but you can't fully capture the full significance of this on canvas or through any other medium. In the early days of television, uh, there was a program that made the transition from radio to TV. And if you're as old as I am, you, you may remember this program. But they tried to recreate famous and infamous scenes and events out of human history and then report on them as if they were in the news for the evening. Walter Cronkite actually hosted this program. Uh, it was called You Were There. Now, I don't know how many will remember it, but... Uh, all kinds of events from human history were uh, presented, put on film, and then uh, they came into the living rooms of people throughout America 
But there was uh, the Oklahoma land rush, the assassination of Julius Caesar, the assassination of Lincoln. Uh, the Oklahoma, did I say the Oklahoma land rush? Just so many. The, the capture of Jesse James. Every week there would be a new program featuring some event. And at the end of every program of this You Were There, Walter Cronkite would close with iconic words, either the same or similar to this. What sort of day was it? It was a day like all days, filled with those events that alter and illuminate our times. All things are as they were then, and you were there. And we felt like we were there. Even as a young boy, I felt that I was there experiencing uh, that event as if it actually had occurred that day. Well, uh, they'd never dealt with uh, the events of that uh, Thursday evening that we're referring to this morning, but they well could have. When you think of all that happened on that Thursday evening, there in the upper room with the disciples, later when Jesus left and went with them to the Garden of Gethsemane where he was later betrayed by Judas and arrested, and even later than that at the courtyard of the high priest when Peter denies him three times. It was an awesome and an awful time in many ways. Outside, the trees were beginning to bud in the spring. The sun had set. The streets were relatively empty by this time because all of the faithful Jews of Jerusalem would be in their homes or in some place of assembly celebrating the Passover together. Things had changed over the course of the week. Uh, the hosannas from Palm Sunday had long since died out. No one was saying Hosanna. The palm branches lie wilting in the streets. That previous Sunday had proved to be quite a disappointment for the Jews of Jerusalem at that time, many of whom had ventured from far off to come and celebrate the Passover in the holy city. But their hopes and dreams had been dashed. They had hoped that this would be the one to deliver Israel, that this would be the Messiah even, the, the coming king. And yet he bore no resemblance to a king or a deliverer as they could imagine it anywhere, anyway. Uh, who was this Rabbi Jesus from up in Galilee? And why could he claim to be a king or a deliverer? There was in the upper room an air of apprehension. There may have been pleasant weather outside, probably was, but inside that upper room there was tension, apprehension, fear, foreboding they didn't know what lay ahead and the man at the center of it all after they had taken their places looked at them and said those words of shock and unimagination truly one of you will betray me and how do they respond one after the other is it I Lord is it I It was a night of introspection, a night of self-examination, and it still is for those of us who follow Jesus. Is it I, Lord? Question. How do you imagine that question was asked? What did they mean by those words? 
I believe, or at least I choose to believe, there are different ways of interpreting the words here, but I choose to believe in this instance we get a rare glimpse into the nobility of heart of those men that Jesus surrounded himself with, that he called to be his disciples. Because often enough in the Gospels, we see the weakness and the frailty and the failings of the disciples. We see their dullness, their stubbornness, their arrogance, their vying for position and honor. They're misreading the intentions of Jesus, the intentions of other people, resisting their own call and their own commission. We see their flaws and their failings that are just like ours. And yet here, I believe, there is that rare instance where each of them ask, in all honesty and in sincerity, is it I? Am I the one who will betray you? As I indicated, there are various ways of looking at these words in the Greek written on the page. They don't have access to the tone or the inflection or the gestures that might have accompanied it. It's just words on a phrase, on a page. So how do you translate it? Translators of Scripture have to make a conscious decision as to what they think was intended by the words that are written there. And one of the ways of rendering these words, actually the words literally in the Greek would be this, not I am Lord. Those are what the words are in Greek. Not I am Lord. But that can be rendered in different ways. Is it I, Lord? Is it not I, Lord? Or surely not I, Lord? So depending on how you translate the words, they can either be a denial of one's guilt or an, a, an acceptance, a recognition that one had the capacity or the potential to be the betrayer of their Lord. I think that's what it is. I think each of these disciples in this moment in the presence of Jesus recognize their own culpab culpability, their own weakness, their own mixed motives, and realize that any one of them could have gotten up from that table and betrayed their Lord. If my suspicion and if this interpretation is correct, then this is a most telling question, is it not? It's one that each of us should ask of ourselves. Notice what isn't asked. Peter doesn't say, oh, is it Matthew? Because, you know, Matthew was a tax collector. He was accustomed to dealing with the Roman officials. If someone were in a position to betray him, Matthew certainly had a lot of contacts. James didn't say, is it Thomas? Because Thomas had his moments of doubt and struggle. Could it have been Thomas? Thomas didn't say, is it Judas? No one in the group said, is it Judas? And yet they knew that Judas had problems with, with money. He was the treasurer of the group. And you remember just a few days earlier uh, in Bethany when he is anointed by this nameless woman off the streets, Judas is the one who's upset and said, this perfume could have been sold and the money given to the poor. But no one said, is Judas the betrayer? Each person inquired only of himself and not of another. Jesus said, well, it's one who's dipped his hand in the dish with me. But in point of fact, all of them at that Seder meal had dipped their hand in the dish as a part of the meal. I do believe that each disciple was able in this moment and in the presence of their Lord to look deeply into his own heart and life and see there his divided loyalty 
his mixed motives, his moral cowardice, if you will. Each person knew himself well enough that he knew he could be that person, that he could be the one that betrayed the Lord. And in point of fact, each of them was. That's why I read the 56th verse. Because after Jesus is arrested in the garden that night and taken away by the soldiers, we read that all of the disciples deserted him. All of them forsook him and fled. So you see, Judas isn't the only culprit in this story of betrayal. He's not the only vi villain in this, this account. They're all guilty. The great late Carlisle Marney, a Baptist preacher from here in North Carolina, referred to the disciples as that company of betrayers. And that is what they were, and that is what we are as well. Is it I, Lord? Had Jesus answered each of them, I think he would have said, yes, it is you. It's you. It's me. It's Irwin. It's Tita. It's Martha Jane. It's Bert. It's any of you who are listening. Yes, you're the betrayer. Each and every one of us is in some way or another. And I think there's something refreshingly different in the disciples' response here when they say, is it I? Because we live in an age where people don't want to take responsibility for their own flaws and failings. We can always find someone else who is to blame or partly to blame for our failures. Maybe we blame our parents. Maybe we blame our society. We, maybe we blame the Republicans or we blame the Democrats or we blame this group or that group. That's a popular thing to do. Few of us want to look inside ourselves and ask, how am I responsible for the evil and the betrayal that takes place around me? Jesus saw this. He said on one occasion, why do you see the speck in your, own, in your brother's eye, but there's a log in your own eye? So maybe things haven't changed that much since the days of Jesus and how we try to escape our culpability and our blame and our participation, if you will, in the sacrificial death of Jesus. To be sure, each of us has his or her own particular sins. Our sins may differ. But we so easily conclude that the sins of others are far more egregious and serious than are our particular sins. They seem tame in comparison with the sins of others. And sometimes we think, well, they are deserving of the punishment that they are getting. But certainly not I. Hate groups around the world and in this country find groups to target because they're different. They're different racially or ethnically or economically or educationally or regionally. We otherize people, as I heard someone say in a meeting in recent days. I'd never heard the word turned into a verb, to otherize, make others different from us. Just a few years ago and continuing today when churches are trying to decide how are they to respond and include people who may have a different sexual orientation from their own, how do we deal with that? And so many people in the heyday of those arguments would call attention to Sodom and Gomorrah that had questionable sexual mores and God condemned the city and destroyed it. But some of the people that like to quote that don't quote from Ezekiel. When Ezekiel is comparing Jerusalem 
to Sodom. And this is what Ezekiel says about the sin of Sodom. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty. They did abominable things before me, says the Lord. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. So let us beware, lest we deceive ourselves into thinking that the sins of others are somehow worse than our own, more abominable than our own. Let us never conclude that it is others who betrayed Jesus, because all of us do. And God is equally offended by all sin. We are all included in that company of betrayers. And Jesus, in his interpretation of the law, lets none of us off the hook. You say you don't murder, you feel good about that, but if you have anger in your heart, if you call your brother a fool, you may not have committed adultery, but if you have lust in your heart, you're still guilty, says Jesus. So all of us come under the condemnation of the law, and the sins of each of us contribute to the betrayal and the death of our Savior. So who is the guilty party when it comes to betraying Jesus? Is it not each of us and all of us? Yes, we can make a whipping boy out of Judas and maybe feel better about ourselves if we can blame Judas for the betrayal and the death of Jesus. But let us beware. I remember a teacher saying when I was very young, Beware lest in pointing your finger at someone else, you don't notice that you have three others pointing back at you. So we are not to judge others, but judge ourselves. And the real tragedy of Judas is not really that he alone betrayed Jesus. And it's not that he even took his life in regret. The tragedy of Judas is that he didn't wait around three days to discover that there is forgiveness for all those for whom Christ died, each and every one of us sinners. Judas's condemnation was self-imposed and premature. As we continue as people of faith through this season of Lent and are on our way in this journey to a cross and eventually to an empty tomb, let us see it as a time for honest introspection and critical self-examination and personal repentance. Because we see in the one who got up from that table and submitted himself to the indignities and the pain of the cross that he has made a way for each of us to receive that forgiveness and to live differently in the future. We may deceive others about the depth and the nature of our sins, but we do not deceive God. God knows us better than we know ourselves. God sees into our hearts and minds as well as into our actions and attitudes. And there is forgiveness even for the likes of us as there is for all sinners who trust in Christ as their sacrifice. Friends, not just in our imaginations, but in reality, we are with them. We are there in that upper room and in the garden and even at the foot of the cross. We're still there.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we draw this service to a close, I would like to charge each of us, as people of faith, to remember who we are and remember whose we are. And therefore, I charge you to go into the world from wherever you are, remembering that you belong to God and remembering that you bear the name of Jesus Christ. Bear that name carefully because you're not your own. Bear that name gratefully for you have been purchased at a price and bear that name joyfully for the Lord would use each of us in his service. And may the grace, mercy, and peace of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit rest and remain with you and with all you love now and forever. Amen.